So as the ushers come forward, do me a favor, turn in your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 2, and we will be in verses 22 through to 32. If you've been here with us over the last couple weeks, you know that we as a church have been walking through a series that we've called The Majors, Uh, and this has been a study of an ancient statement of faith known as the Apostles' Creed. Now, we've called this series The Majors because we use this language and have used this language for years in the life of our church. There are majors in the faith, things that are of first importance, and then there are minors in the faith. And and we've always said we wanna be a church that majors on the majors and minors on the minors, which sounds like a tongue twister that is impossible to say seven times fast. But the idea behind that is that we wanna be a congregation that are committed to the things that are of most importance. We want to be committed to the things that are central to the faith. Now, when we talk about majors and minors, that's not to say that the minors are unimportant. There are plenty of very, very important issues. And where you land on these issues truly does matter in your walk with Christ. And yet, none of the minor issues are salvation level. Uh, These are in-house debates rather than the difference between a brother in Christ or somebody who is not in Christ. And so we've committed to walking through some of the central tenets of the faith through the lens of something called the Apostles' Creed. For nearly 2,000 years, Christians have confessed the Apostles' Creed as containing in it an essential summary of the majors of the faith. It has its beginnings in baptism in the early church. In the book of Acts, people converted to Christianity and they were immediately baptized. But as time went on and as false teachings began to spread, the early church started to put distance between conversion and baptism. And they said, I know you say you're a Christian, but I want to make sure that you know what that means. I want to make sure that you understand what you're saying because there's a lot of people who are saying they're Christians in the early church that don't really understand what they're saying. And so the creed became a way of teaching the basics of the faith. And so, it has been central to the life of the church for nearly 2,000 years. There are many churches, even today, that recite the Apostles' Creed every single week. Uh, Maybe you grew up in such a church. Maybe you're at Bay Life because you're running from such a church. (laughs) And you're wondering why it is that we've dusted off this old, ancient tradition. And I understand that. I'm sympathetic to that. We have the Bible which is our final authority as Christians. And yet, the creed still carries weight. Uh, I'm I'm reminded of a story about the British preacher Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was well known in the 1800s as being one of the best preachers in London. And he had a massive library that was was widely regarded as being um, one of the best in any pastor's study. And there's a story about uh, another pastor in the area who took Charles Spurgeon aside and he said, you've got all these books and you read all these commentaries and all these theologians and all this church history and you don't need any of that. I don't need any of that because I have the Holy Spirit and I have my Bible. And so I I don't need all these fancy guides. The Holy Spirit will teach me what I need to know. And, And Spurgeon's response was, I'm surprised that you who think so highly of what the Holy Spirit has to say to you. Think so little of what he might have said to anyone else. That's why the creed is important. Because we are not the first generation of people to believe the gospel. We are not the first generation of people to read the Bible. We are not the first generation of people to have the Holy Spirit. 
for 2,000 years, our brothers and sisters who have had the Spirit have looked at the Bible and then looked at the creed and said this short statement is a great summary of the foundations of what it means to be a Christian and the basics of what the Bible teaches. And so we're continuing our time together in the creed this morning. Having talked about Jesus being born of a virgin, we're moving to the work of Jesus, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that he suffered and was buried, that he descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose again. We're doing this through the lens of the book of Acts. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Acts, it may be worthwhile to just give you a little bit of background, because we want to look at this through the lens of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. So, Acts sort of begins where the gospel of Luke ends. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He has promised to send the Holy Spirit. And in that promise, the disciples have waited. They've waited and waited. And for 40 days, they wait in Jerusalem, the city where Jesus was crucified and where he appeared to them, risen from the dead, until finally the Holy Spirit is poured out and the apostles begin to speak in tongues. And in this particular instance, these are not sort of the tongues of angels, as are referenced elsewhere, but they're speaking in languages that are known. And there's a crowd in Jerusalem, because it's a major city, there's a crowd of people from different nations that speak different languages, and they all begin to hear the apostles speaking in a language that they understand, proclaiming what Jesus has done. And you can imagine the crowd starts to gather more and more and more. I mean, it's like any time there's a street preacher anywhere, a crowd gathers, And so Peter stands up and he begins to explain to them what's happened because the crowd thinks that the apostles are drunk and he says they can't be drunk, it's only noon, which is not always a good argument in certain parts of our country. (laughs) But he says it's only noon, They, they, they can't actually be drunk. No, what you're seeing is the fulfillment of the promises of God, that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And then Peter begins to preach to this captive audience the gospel. He begins to proclaim to them what Jesus has done and what God has done in Jesus. So let me just read our passage for us this morning as we step into it. The book of Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 32. Peter stood up and he said to the crowd, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made known to me the paths of life. In your presence you will make me full of gladness. So Peter begins this sermon on Pentecost by referencing what Mark talked about last week in the Creed. The people in Jerusalem are well aware of the miraculous nature of Jesus' ministry. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God through many signs and wonders, you crucified. And no doubt he's calling to mind what we talked about last week, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, 
that he had this miraculous ministry of healing the sick and raising the dead and opening the eyes of the blind. He says, that's the Jesus who you crucified. He says, you crucified him by delivering him over into the hands of lawless men. This is no doubt a reference to Pontius Pilate and the Roman government and Herod, all of these people who legally had a hand in Jesus' death. And this gets to something that is really important for us to grasp. It's, it's, It's a distinctive of Christianity. Because Peter roots his gospel proclamation in history. Um, A great majority of my friends are are not Christians. I would say probably 75% of my friends are not believers. The other 25% are, and that's basically just my fellow staff members here at the church. And so I'm constantly having conversations with, with people who don't believe the same thing as I do. We're constantly having uh, discussions around who we think Jesus is, who I believe Jesus is as a Christian, and who they believe Jesus is, coming from all sorts of different religious backgrounds. And every once in a while, in the midst of the conversation, someone will say something to the effect of, listen, if you think that Christianity is true for you, then that's awesome. Like, I'm so glad you found something that works for you. But it's not true for me. And we hear phrases like this all the time, don't we? Especially post-Oprah. This phrase, speak your truth. And I understand what is implied by that. Certainly there are personal experiences that that we need to share with others who have been unaware of what we've been through. I understand what might be implied, and I think in some cases that might be a good thing. But this phrase will not work when we apply it to Christianity. It will not work when you apply it to the creed. Because Peter roots the truthfulness of Christianity in historic events. This Jesus, you delivered over into the hands of lawless men. You crucified him. The creed names names. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Christianity is not interested in your truth. It's interested in the truth. Jesus was either crucified under Pontius Pilate or he wasn't. And if he wasn't, then the gospel is not just my truth, it's not true. But if he was, if as Peter says, Jesus was delivered over into the hands of lawless men and really did die in our place and for our sake, it's still not just my truth, it's true for everyone. So maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. And you're here because you were dragged here by a family member or a friend or a grandma or a grandpa. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, this is not, this is not for me. If it works for them, that's fine. It's just not for me. Can I just tell you, Christianity at its core, the Apostles' Creed, the Bible, is not offering an essential oil sales pitch. Hey, this worked for me. You should give it a shot. The gospel is a proclamation of real events that took place in history, and if they happen, you have to decide what you're going to do with that. Peter also says that Jesus was crucified not just because he was delivered over by the crowds, but he says that this happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That is to say that the cross was not an accident. That Jesus wasn't caught in sort of a political machine, that he wasn't um, outmaneuvered by his enemies, that he didn't accidentally end up there because he wasn't cunning enough. 
The cross was God's plan from the beginning. It's not plan B after Eden. It was God's plan from the foundation of the world that his son would stand in our place and bear our judgment. And then Peter quotes a psalm. He says, David spoke of this. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And so Peter moves from the crucifixion and death of Christ to what comes next. What happens after Jesus dies? This gets to a a part of the creed that I think many of us are probably uncomfortable with. Uh, We we didn't say it here at the beginning of our service. We're going to say it together at the end of our service because I want to explain what we're going to say. But there's this line. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. He descended into hell. Now, I'm sure that many of you, as we've said this over the last few weeks, have faked a cough there so you don't accidentally say something that may or may not be true or biblical or heretical. Like every, every time I've been in a room where this is said, I can hear people sort of mumble it under their breath. This, this is a, a controversial and it's a challenging line. And I want to spend the rest of our time together addressing it because I do think that it's important and I think it's in there for a reason. But I want to offer some qualifications ahead of time before we dive in. Um, The first thing I want to say is that when we ask, what does it mean to say Jesus descended into hell, the answer will not be simple. Uh, I think I frustrated a lot of my college students back when I was the college pastor because they would ask me questions and they wanted uh, like a two or three minute answer. And they would get a 15 to 20 minute answer. (laughs) They'd be like, why is it so difficult? And I'd say, because nothing is ever as simple as you think it is. (laughs) The reality, though, is that there are questions in theology that are simple. They have simple answers. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes. You still got 130 characters to tweet after you answer that. (laughs) Is Jesus coming back? Yes. Definitely. You used up a little bit more of your Twitter space. But if you ask the question, what will it look like when Jesus comes back? Good luck fitting that into a tweet. It's not that simple. It's not that the truth isn't true. It's just that it's not as easy to articulate or explain. And so understand that we're about to dive into the deep end here together as a church. And then this is the other thing that I just want to lay before you. Um, I want to be very transparent uh, that godly people disagree on this. That there are godly people on all sides of this conversation um, my friend Mariana, who serves in our worship arts department, was in our meeting as we were planning for this, and she grew up in the Methodist church. And she said, we said the creed every week. We just left this line out. We just ignored it. And there are certainly people who, who would say that. And I think they're godly people who love the Lord, who are trying to be faithful to Scripture. Uh, there are other people, in particular sort of the Presbyterian denominations following John Calvin, who would say that when we say Jesus descended into hell... We're actually describing what happened on the cross. Because what is hell but the judgment of God? And what does Jesus experience on the cross in our place? It's the judgment of God. And I think that's a respectable position. 
Roman Catholics think differently about this than Eastern Orthodox Christians. So let me just say that, that everything that follows I offer in a, a spirit of humility, recognizing that godly people might not see eye to eye with me. But I offer this because I am convinced that it makes the best sense, sense of what the early church believed and more importantly what the Bible teaches. And, and I'll tell you if you want to look into this more, there's a great book by a, a Southern Baptist theologian named Matthew Emerson called He Descended to the Dead. Uh, and he'll be joining us on the podcast in the next few weeks to talk about this a little bit more. So with all of those caveats, some of you are like, what the heck is this guy going to say now? <laughs> with all of that being said, what do we mean? What is Peter talking about when he says that Jesus will not be abandoned in Hades? The first thing that needs saying, I don't think that's grammatically correct. The first thing that needs to be said is that hell is probably not the best translation of what the creed originally meant. You see, language develops, and it evolves, and it changes, and, and the meaning of words are not always fixed. Uh, this is why it's so hard to read Shakespeare. In the Middle Ages, when the creed was translated out of Latin, the term hell did not always denote a place of torment. In, in the King James Bible, the term hell is used to describe pretty much every state after death. Every different Greek or Hebrew word that's used to describe death was translated hell because that word had a wider range of meaning than it does now. When we hear hell, we think of what we see in maybe Looney Tunes where Bugs Bunny kills Elmer Fudd and he ends up in hell and there's pitchforks and there's fire and it's this underground torture chamber. And we rightly recoil at that thought that Jesus descended to that. Jesus says it is finished on the cross. There is no more agony for Jesus to endure. No, I think a better translation of the creed to sort of update what it means into our modern English is that he descended to the dead. He descended to the dead. And so then we have to ask this question, what do we mean by that? What does the Bible say, especially about death, before the work of Jesus? And the best way to sort of think about this is maybe what happens when you wake up in the morning. It's, it's daylight savings time, so all of us woke up much earlier but I pretty much follow the same routine every morning. Um, I wake up, I turn off my alarm clock, I go back to sleep. <laughs> I wake up, I turn off my alarm clock, I go back to sleep, and then I do it a third time, one for each member of the Trinity. <laughs> it's, it's a deeply spiritual practice. <laughs> and then I throw my phone across the room, <laughs> and then I finally open my eyes. And I always look to my right, and my wife is there, and then I look at the foot of my bed, and my cat is there. And over the course of the next five minutes, things start to come into focus. You begin to see a little bit more clearly. I realize that my wife has drooled all over the pillow. I realize that my cat is covered in toilet paper because he's unwound the whole thing and torn it apart while we were asleep. It's not that what I saw when I first opened my eyes wasn't true. It's just that as my eyes have been opened, things are becoming more clear. There are greater details that I'm seeing about the realities next to me and beneath my feet. And this is the way that the Old Testament progresses with regards to what happens after we die. The first five books of the Old Testament say very little. When the patriarchs die, it says only that they were gathered to their fathers. But as the Old Testament goes on, as God continues to reveal himself to Israel, as he continues to give them scripture, things come into focus. Like
a camera beginning to see what's in front of it. The details become clearer, and so the Old Testament begins to refer to a place called Sheol as the place of the dead. And it's vague at first, but there is this understanding, you see it especially in the Psalms, you see it in the book of Ecclesiastes, you see it in certain chapters of Isaiah, that everyone goes to Sheol. Because Israel understood that their sin kept them from being in the presence of a holy God. They did not expect to go to heaven. They knew that even entering the Holy of Holies would kill them. How could they ever enter the the dwelling place of God? They knew that their sacrifices were temporary. That they would offer a sacrifice and be forgiven their sins and then sin immediately afterwards. And so there was this expectation that they would enter a place known as Sheol. And then as the Bible moves on in the Old Testament, things become a little bit clearer. You begin to see in the book of Ezekiel and Isaiah this understanding that even Sheol, this grave, translated in your New Testament as Hades, will not have the final word, but that God is going to do something to bring about resurrection. Now in Jesus' day, the, the, the theologians and the scholars were holding their Old Testament and they were thinking about it and pondering it and reflecting on it and sort of turning it over and thinking about everything that Scripture said about how God has mercy on the righteous and judges the wicked and that he forgives 10,000 times over but he does not pardon the guilty. And so an idea began to develop as they reflected on the Old Testament that within Sheol, within this general place of the dead, there was division. It was almost like a house named Sheol with rooms. And all of this is spiritual. This is not a physical place, but they used physical language. And so they began to discuss, in Jesus' day, the lowest part of Sheol, which your New Testament calls Tartarus. Tartarus. They began to describe it as a pit, an abyss, which is what you see in Revelation. You see it in Uh, The book of Jude, chapter 1, verse 6, you see it in 2 Peter 2, 4. And they described this as a place of judgment and a place of darkness where Satan and the demons who rebelled with him were kept. And then they they began to discuss this other place sort of within the, the depths of Sheol, another place of judgment and torment. Sometimes they referred to it as Sheol or Gehenna or Hades. And sometimes they use that term to describe the whole place of the dead. This was a place of torment. This was a place that the wicked went when they died. People who had rebelled against God, who had not been justified by faith, and it was the place they went to await final judgment on the last day. But they also described a place that they called paradise, or Abraham's bosom. And this was the place that the righteous went This was the place where those who had waited on the promised Messiah were sent to await the Messiah's work. This was not a place of torment. This was not a place of judgment. This was a place where the righteous dead awaited God's final saving action. Now, you hear all this, and and I'm sure many of us go, okay, well, that's great that some people out there believe that, but where is this in our Bible? Where is this coming from? Well, let me give you just one example. In the book of Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story about death. He tells a parable. He's talking to the Pharisees, 
and he's indicting them for their greed. And Jesus says this in Luke chapter 16. Now there was a rich man dressed in purple and fine linen who lived each day in joyous splendor. And a beggar named Lazarus lay at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed the crumbs from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. One day the beggar died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham from afar, with Lazarus by his side. And so he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in this fire. And Abraham answered, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. And besides all this, there is a great chasm that has been fixed between us and you, so that even those who wish cannot cross from here to you, nor can anyone cross from there to us. Now, this parable is told to rebuke the Pharisees for their opinions about wealth. And you might say, well, it's a parable, so, so how seriously we can, can we take that? And I would tell you this, Jesus' parables always assume reality. Although they're fictitious stories, they are set in reality. So Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. And whether the prodigal son happened literally and you could dig up his house, it assumes the world that Jesus' hearers live in, a, a patriarchal society, where what the prodigal son did would have been seen as an incredible act of disrespect towards the father. He assumes that he, his hearers know what he's talking about. In the same way, when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, whether there was literally a Good Samaritan or it's just a story Jesus is telling, he assumes that everyone knows all of the tension between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. He says, this is the world we live in. Let me tell you a story inside of it. So when Jesus tells this parable, he says... Here's what we all expect to happen after death. But you think that people will go to paradise based on their money, and that's where you're wrong. Jesus makes no attempt to correct the Pharisees' reading of the Old Testament, and he's not afraid to do that. He does it multiple times in the Gospels, but not here. So when we say that Jesus descended to the dead, when the early Christians wrote Jesus descended to the dead, they are confessing that when Jesus breathed his last, he descended to the place that Lazarus goes in his parable. Paradise. Abraham's side. The place of the righteous dead. And Jesus says as much on the cross. He, he looks to the thief. And he says, on this day, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' return to heaven and to his father takes place after the resurrection. One of the women at the tomb tries to hug him and he says, I've not yet ascended to my father. Don't touch me. What's behind Peter's quotation in this psalm in Acts is this understanding that as David has said, the Messiah will descend to Hades, but he will not stay in the grave. Jesus must endure all that comes with death, but he will not remain there when I was in high school, there was a, a, a band called Brand New, not a Christian band. I didn't even particularly like them, but they had a song called Jesus Christ. And it, and it asked this hypothetical question. Jesus Christ, I'm alone again. So what did you do on those three days that you were dead? So what happens 
What happens when Jesus descends to the place where all the Old Testament saints have been waiting on the Messiah? I just want to be clear. I think that the Bible only gives us glimpses. It paints in broad brush strokes, but I think that each of these is important for us to understand what it is that we're confessing. 1 Peter 3.19 says this, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went. And he preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Peter says that after Christ was put to death in the body, after the crucifixion, he preached, and the word here is declared. This is not an altar call. This is not an invitation. This is a declaration. Here is what has happened to the spirits in prison. That language fits what we know about Tartus. Mentioned in 2 Peter 2.4, in Jude 1.6, in the book of Revelation. This is the place of Satan and his demons. And Jesus declares in his descent to them, you have lost. You have lost. And that is an astounding thing to think about, isn't it? Before the disciples even know, Jesus says it is finished and they think that he's saying I'm done, it's over. Jesus says it is finished because the work of atonement is completed, the power of sin is broken, Satan's grip has been destroyed and then he descends and he says you've lost. Before anyone on earth knows it, he descends and declares his victory. Paul gives us another glimpse in the book of Ephesians chapter four, verses seven through to 10. He says this now, to each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led many captives away and he gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the very one who ascended above all the heavens in order to fill all things. So Paul gives us this vision that after Christ's descent, in his ascension, he led captives away and then poured out the Holy Spirit. And these captives, I, I understand, to be the Old Testament saints who had waited on the promised Messiah. That Christ descends to where they have waited all these years and says the same thing, I've won, it's over. And in his ascension, he leads them into the presence of God. And they dwell in paradise no longer, but they dwell in God's presence, which is the fullness of joy. In entering the grave, Jesus defeats it. It no longer holds any power over those who belong to him. This is why he says in Revelation, don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and behold, now I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys to death and to Hades. This is why Paul can say now, because of Christ's descent, to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. It's better for me that I die because I know that now, if I die, I will be with Christ. And all of this makes perfect sense. When we receive good news, our first inclination ought to be to tell the people who are most affected by it. Um, so 
Example, um, my wife and I have been in the process of trying to figure out how to buy a house for the last like three months. It's way harder than I thought it would be. And there's all of these different steps that feel like major victories until we see the next mountain. <laughs> and I, we've told our families and we're, we're you know, keeping them in, in the loop on what's going on. But at each step, I tend to be the first one who hears about it because I'm the one in touch with our mortgage agent. And so when we got our credit cleaned up, I went and I told my wife. And then I told my parents. Uh, when, when we got pre-approved for a home loan, I didn't text my buddy Josh of 20 years. I went and I told my wife. And then I texted my buddy Josh, who's also a realtor. <laughs> right? We naturally understand when something good happens, you tell the one who's most affected by it first. This is what's pictured in Christ's descent. Those Old Testament saints who have waited in the grave, anticipating the Messiah, are the first to hear that he has conquered death. For centuries, they have waited in faith, but as Jesus descends into paradise on Good Friday, their faith becomes sight. In the same way, Peter tells us that he proclaimed his victory to those spirits in prison for disobedience. Satan and the demons are the first to know that they have lost, unlike the apostles who have to wait until Sunday. His power is broken, and Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades, so his people wait there no longer. Now, I realize that this is intricate and complicated and probably not the easiest sermon to sit through and digest, and, and you may just be tempted even in this moment to ask, like, why does any of this matter? Why, why is any of this important? And, and I'll tell you, I have battled through this issue all week. I have read three books from 16 different viewpoints, and I know the math doesn't add up in that. But I am convinced that Jesus' descent matters profoundly for each and every one of us. It matters because should Jesus wait to return, each and every one of us will die. And we will see people we love die. And if the gospel can't speak to that, then we're in trouble. If the gospel doesn't speak to the deathbed, we're in trouble. In, in the last five years or so, um, I've reached the point in my life where some of the older members of my immediate family have begun to go and be with the Lord. And on my mom's side, both of my grandparents have passed away. And in God's grace and in God's kindness, I have sat at the foot of both of their beds within days of their passing, and we have recited the Apostles' Creed together. I wasn't there when my grandpa passed away, but I was there when my grandma died in the room with my cousin Ben, who some of you know, my mom, who many of you know, and my uncles. And it wasn't like the movies. There wasn't a heart monitor. There wasn't dramatic music playing. But we saw her die. I don't know if you've ever seen that happen before. But something visibly changes the moment that a soul leaves a body. You don't need the heart monitor to tell you. There is a visible change. And when my grandmother died, unplanned, not rehearsed, not discussed, my mom said under her breath, absent with the body, and all of us in the room, 
responded, present with the Lord. It was not always possible to say this. There was a time where God's people were absent with the body and waiting on the Lord. But in Jesus' descent, those days are over. Those days are over. Now we are absent with the body and we are present with the Lord. To be able to say that at the foot of every Christian's deathbed is a gift that was purchased by Jesus' death on the cross, his descent to the dead, and his resurrection. Because Jesus has descended and holds the keys to death and Hades, he has shut its mouth so that nobody who dies in Christ will ever pass that way again. From now on, we are absent with the body and we are present with the Lord as we await resurrection. And that's where Peter's sermon goes. He says that being a prophet, David knew that God had sworn an oath with him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. He descended to the dead, and on the third day, he rose again. This is the source of hope for Christians in the face of death, that Jesus has paid for our sins on the cross. He has shut the mouth of the grave in his descent, and now we await resurrection and we face our graves east, knowing that just as Christ was raised, we too shall be raised. And so from the earliest centuries of the church, Christians have confessed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended to hell, and on the third day he rose again. May that comfort you and carry you in the face of a world that is awaiting resurrection. If you are not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't come to believe the gospel, I want to invite you during uh, the next few moments as we sing in response to meet me or one of our elders at the front of the stage, or if you just need prayer, we'll be down here ready to talk.